Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be back, and it's very good to see you on this Lord's Day. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the second chapter of the Gospel of Mark in your New Testament. Mark chapter 2. In just a moment, we're going to begin reading from verse 23. If this helps, it's page 708 in your church Bibles. As many of you know, we've been working through Mark's Gospel verse by verse. I was gone for a while, and the guys took my place, my friends, my elders, my colleagues, And so here we are this morning, all spared, Lord willing, in verse 23 of chapter 2 of Mark's gospel. Just one thing I would like you to consider while you're getting set. In 2005 uh, was Hurricane Andrew, or excuse me, Katrina, and uh, that was another hurricane my family went through in South Florida. Um, We took three trips, myself and many people from our congregation in Tennessee, we took three trips there. And so what I want you to consider in light of all that's happened If you have the ability, if you have the skill to help, I would strongly urge you in the name of Jesus Christ to consider going down there and helping. Uh, It will do a world of good. Every time we were down there, it was Christ-exalting. People were helped tremendously. The burdens that people are carrying are tough right now. And so if you have the ability, if you have the skill, uh, please just prayerfully consider um, going down there, you can connect so easily with groups. If I can help you in any way, I'd be happy to do that. So I just want you to think through that as um, people in Beaumont and Rockport and in Houston, those are places very familiar to me, are um, just trying to get out of that mess. So let's just think through that. Okay, let's hear the word of the Lord. Verse 23, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, <clears throat> excuse me, and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man. Now that word is humanity, anthropos. So it's, it was made not just for us as individuals, but for all humanity. Not just God's people, but all humanity. So the Sabbath was made for all humanity, <clears throat> excuse me, not humanity for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked him, uh, them, excuse me, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill. But they remained silent. He looked around them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to them, to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then, and believe it or not, this is our key verse, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Hmm. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word and grant us understanding of it. If he would, please, let's bow and pray to that end now. God and Father, we, we acknowledge your authority, 
your goodness, your, your beauty, your love, and your presence with us now. And there's great comfort in that. And with our Bibles open, we do humbly ask and seek the help of the Holy Spirit. For we, I, as always, I know my frailty. And so to speak, to preach, for us to listen and obey, we remain completely dependent people. However, Father, we thank you that we are your people, we're your children. And so, God, there is this high expectation of your grace coming to our aid in order that a moment like this, which frankly might never come again, will matter for all eternity. So, Father, please bring glory to your name. And please help us as your children. For Jesus' sake, we pray this. Amen. Well, it's often been said that Jesus brings people together. And this is true. Sometimes the words and deeds of Jesus bring people together for good reasons. And sometimes the word, uh, words and deeds of Jesus uh, bring people together for bad reasons. If your Bible's open, you'll see verse 6 of chapter 3. Jesus, his words and his deeds have uh, brought people together for a bad reason. It's a very bad reason. Plotting out his death. Two groups you see there. The Pharisees, who were the guardians of the religious establishment of that day, and the Herodians. This is the first time we probably heard of them in Mark's gospel. Part of the political establishment of that day. They have come together, each enemies of Christ, and each obviously in different ways are threatened by Christ, and they wish to be rid of him. And what would be so shocking to the original readers of this gospel is that these two groups, on any other matter, they would never, ever come together. They never had anything to do with each other, and they never worked together at all. Because, you see, the Herodians, as I said, they aligned themselves with the political powers of the day. So their friend was King Herod, and their friend was Rome. And the Pharisees, the uh, Jewish nationalists, could not stand Rome. And the sooner Roman occupation ended, the better. However, here comes this young man from Nazareth. And he has brought what would be akin in our day, two groups together. He is, if you would, he's brought Democrats and Republicans together. And so he brought them together, of course, so they might hatch a plot to be rid of Jesus. And so you're sensible people. There's a basic question that needs to be asked. What's going on here? I mean, it's wheat And it's a shriveled hand, and it's the Sabbath. Why do they want to kill Jesus? Right? So at first glance, I would confess that if you come to these verses very cold, you'd probably say the same thing, right? Wheat eaten on the Sabbath, and a gentleman's hand is made well on the Sabbath, and the result is, you see this in verse 6, Jesus needs to die for this? Really? I mean, massive overreaction is verse 6. And can't you hear people say, you know, there they go again, the silly religious people. And they're fighting over silly religious things that have no bearing on the, quote, real world and no bearing on my life. And maybe the atheist uh, Victor Sturgeon was right when he, he said, uh, after 9-11, science flies you to the moon, religion flies you into buildings. And right, besides, we're just a couple of days away from the end of summer. <laughs> and so here you are, and you're like, weed in hand, and the summer's almost over. It's not going to be an endless summer. <laughs> And my heart is breaking. And here you are reading about shriveled hands and Sabbath and heads of grain. And what appears to me uh, to be some religious nutcases who who want Jesus dead. This doesn't seem very helpful. However, loved ones, 
If you've been tracking with us through Mark's gospel, this is one of those times where we need to let the Bible tell us what we need to know and not try to make the Bible conform to what we think we need to know. Because what is happening here is something not of a marginal interest. This is about two different ways to approach God and two different ways to approach life and eternal life. One is completely right. The other is completely wrong. So we have to remind ourselves that Jesus had been confronting the the Pharisees' way of life and their religion not by going after them, right? So he's not purposely ready to start a fight. But all he's doing is going from place to place telling the gospel. And at every turn, the Pharisees, their brand of, you know, self-reliant, self-righteous, we can do it, religion, has questioned every good and right thing Jesus has done thus far, right? Chapter 2, verse 7, if your Bible's open, who do you think you are forgiving this man of his sins? Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 16, who do you think you are? You're eating with this horrible sinner Levi. You put him on your A-team, and he's a tax collector, at least used to be, and now you guys are partying with sinners. Who do you think you are? Chapter 2, verse 18, who do you think you are? You guys never fast. Right? Everybody knows that good religious people fast. And you guys are partying with sinners and you got big handfuls of food in your hand. What's going on? So what should be clear to us, and we learned this two weeks ago, that at its core, what is happening in this section in Mark, um, there's a disagreement taking place. And the disagreement is not about fasting. And it's not even really about the Sabbath. Not at its core. The disagreement here. What causes so much angst and uh, devilish behavior by the Pharisees is this. How does God forgive sin? And how does God bring a man or a woman into a relationship with himself? That's the fundamental issue. The Pharisees had one line of thinking. Jesus had another. For the Pharisees to be accepted by God and how they could relate to God was based on a person's willingness and their ability to keep the law. So through their deeds, through keeping God's law is the only way they would know acceptance. So if they were doing really good, everything was really, really good. If they were doing really bad, everything was really, really bad. It was based on what they were doing. And of course, while nothing is wrong with God's law at all, and nothing is wrong with keeping God's law, the proper use of God's law involved involved a lot more than just obedience. Because what was the law of God given to us for? Well, in part, it was given to expose us and to condemn us so that it might humble us as we understand that we can't keep it all and thus cry out to God to save us. But instead of crying out, the Pharisees doubled down. And so they began to mechanize and be meticulous about things and the law. And they added to God's law. And they began to create, if you would, these hedges around God's law. And they added their own rules and their own regulations. And Jesus would refer to them as to the traditions of men. We might call them uh, non-essentials or personal convictions, which are not entirely God's truth and not based on God's truth. And so they added to God's law to make sure everything was good with God. And by adding to it, they ruined it. And what happened then is for the Pharisees, it became a kind of a religious Darwinism, right? The survival of the fittest, right? Only the very, very committed. 
That's why they were such a small group, the Pharisees. Only the very, very committed, only the very, very serious, only the very, very strong will survive and make the cut and get in and be good with God and enjoy God and here's the thing, and be blessed by God, right? Because that's why we're obeying is because we want to be blessed by God. And you want to say good luck with that. And then along comes Jesus, the Son of God, and he is saying repentance and faith in me. That is a thing that puts a person right with God. I'm headed to Calvary to pay a debt you could never pay that you might receive a righteousness you could never achieve. That's how God forgives. That's how people are accepted by God. In other words, Jesus was saying the classic hymn, whoever comes to me, right? I'll never turn away. Whoever, whoever it is. So not only if you are a rule keeper, not only if you're a really shiny moral person, not only if you're a really serious religious fasting person, not even people who can maintain, you know, a certain level of holiness, at least externally, right? No, whoever comes to me, Jesus says, I'll never turn away. And clearly, chapter 3, verse 6, this sets the Pharisees off because they determined they would decide who could come and how they would come. And once they had come, if they could stay. Now, if you're going to be honest, those are two different messages. The gospel of Jesus Christ that God only saves by substitution and the religious formalism of the Pharisees, so different. There is no way in the world that you could even merge what they were saying and, of course, what Jesus was preaching. No way, which is brought out very clearly. Do you see this in verse 21 and 22? New clothes cut are terrible patches for old clothes worn. They're going to tear. You can't mix the gospel with any form of works-based righteousness. And the new wine, free forgiveness and grace and a welcome from God... It cannot be contained in old, brittle wineskin, you know, self-help, self-righteous, add-to-the-law line of living because it'll just burst. And loved ones, that is the fundamental conflict going on here. That's the issue which makes things so volatile for the Pharisees. And if we understand this, then we're going to be able to understand the verses before us. So if your Bible is open, you'll see in verse 24 that apparently the Pharisees had made a practice to follow Jesus and his disciples around. (laughs) It's a little creepy if you think about it. It's understandable, but it's a little creepy, right? It's understandable because so many people are following Jesus and Jesus is not saying what the Pharisees are saying, right? So in the Pharisees' mind, he's going to ruin everything. So we need to keep our eyes on this guy. And Jesus may have said to himself, and I feel a song coming on, (laughs) because everywhere he went, they were following him, right? There's a song from 1997, sorry, Rockwell, I always feel like somebody's watching me, and I have no privacy. I listened to it this morning because I wanted to make sure I had the words right. You should Google it. It's a pretty okay song. I could sing it, but I'm not going to sing it. Number one, condemnation. Verse 23, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. So it seems like a pretty happy scene, right? Most people like fast food. You're walking by a grain field, you're grabbing grain and you're eating it. Fast food and you're not going to pay for it. It's from your neighbor's field. 
Uh, if you've seen the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, which I still can't believe. My parents let me see that when I was 10 years old. I'm like, I still can't believe they let me. Anyway, that's my issue. And so in, the, in, the, in Jesus Christ Superstar, there, Jesus is kind of skipping. The disciples are kind of skipping. Everybody's happy, right? Natural scene. They're going to get a happy meal for free. And then along comes, you see it there, along comes the Squidwards, right? If you're friends of SpongeBob people, you know that. And they're ready to ruin everything. Because Pharisees tend to ruin things. By nature, Pharisees are very unhappy people. By nature, they have trouble with happy people. By nature, Pharisees are very critical and they like to burden people and tell them all the time how bad they are doing. All the time. Hence, the condemnation. Because I chose the word condemnation purposely because although their condemnation of the disciples comes in a form of a question, The question is not, are they right or wrong question. That's not the question. They say what they're doing is unlawful. The the condemnation is in the form of a why question. Why are you guys doing something you should not be doing on the Sabbath? Now, this is what we need to know. No law was being broken by Jesus and his followers in this little um, field scene. Actually, they were keeping the law. Listen to your Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, right, you may pick kernels with your hands, your neighbor's field, but you must not put a sickle to their standing grain. Okay, this was an old covenant law. In other words, God's law said you were welcome to get some grain for a meal in your neighbor's field. For a meal, your hands, not for a month, the sickle, right? A happy meal from your neighbor's field In other words, it was open borders for a meal. That's fine, God says. So Jesus was not breaking the law. So the question is, what's the problem with the Pharisees? Why are they so bothered here? Well, part of the answer is, it's the day the disciples were eating and the way the Pharisees had interpreted and added to God's law. In other words, this is what they were saying. You're not supposed to reap and harvest on the Sabbath. That's work. And when you guys pick and rub the grains, you are reaping and harvesting on the Sabbath. That's work. Therefore, you guys are breaking the Sabbath. Now, personally, how they got all that from that little scene, it's a mystery to me. The guys are hungry, they keep the law, and they eat. And what I want you to see is Jesus' reply is not confrontational, is it? It's not, but what is it? Well, it's, it's theological and it's intellectual, right? It's an example to us all. He's, again, he's not looking for a fight. He's going to give them theology and he's going to give them some intellect. Verse 25 is essentially what? Hey, guys, don't you ever read your Bibles? That's theology, right? Because, you know, the Pharisee types, especially in our day, they tend to be the Bible thumpers. Right? We always listen to the Bible and we always read the Bible and we're always got the Bible. Bible, 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 Bible. And here Jesus says, okay, verse 25, have you never read what David did? And then he says, he and his companions were hungry and they went into the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was only for priests. Now, two things we need to glean from this. First, this is the intellectual part. Jesus knew that David was the uh, poster boy for the Pharisees. In the minds of the Pharisees, David could do no wrong. How do we know that? Well, here's one place. 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 5. David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep 
any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. That's the whole Bathsheba scene. In other words, David kept all the commands except number seven, adultery. However, he never broke number four, the Sabbath. And so by inference, Jesus is saying, look, he and his disciples are doing the exact same thing David and his followers did. Anyone breaking the law? Absolutely not. Why not? Well, here's part of the reason. The ceremonial part of the law, or the, we'll say the Sabbath, keeping it was set aside by a necessity. What was the necessity? This is why God gave us the Sabbath. There was a need. The Sabbath was made to meet needs. They asked for bread. The priest gave the bread. God, David, and the priest were all fine with the arrangement. Now, isn't it kind of curious to you, because it is to me, that almost all of chapter 2 has to do with food, right? So you got the party with Levi, you got the no food thing about fasting in the middle of chapter 2, and now here we are about, you know, rubbing heads of grain together and eating. So what is the deal there? Why all this bread? And here, the, the show bread now. Okay, well... Listen to one of my commentaries, because this is beautiful. So the showbread was called the bread of the presence. Um, and so this is what they said. The bread of the presence, which was going on here with David and Jesus, was called this because it was to always be in the Lord's presence. The table and the bread were a picture of God's willingness to fellowship and communion. Literally speaking, sharing something in common with man. It was like an invitation to share a meal. An extension of friendship. God was willing for man to enter into his presence, to fellowship with him, and this invitation was always open. Jesus exemplified this when he ate with tax collectors, prostitutes, and the sinners of Jewish society. But this was more than just a gesture of friendship on earth. Jesus came to call sinners to him, make them right with God, so that they could enjoy everlasting fellowship with God. So what I want you to see, so it's not by accident that this showbread example is here. It's a picture of the gospel. It's fulfilling something. There's going to come a day where we're going to be able to sup with God. And it's going to be great. And there's not going to be any parameters or these walls. It's going to be all removed by Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. The second thing is that fish tells off this. Okay, why is there a Sabbath in the first place? To ruin our weekends? Is that why there's a Sabbath? Well, the Sabbath is given to humanity in part to meet human need. Now, remember I said to you that that word there uh, in verse 27 is the word humanity, right? So the Sabbath was made for all humanity. So if you just think personal about the Sabbath, you're taking it all wrong. It's for everyone. The good that we do and the things that we do, it's for all. So, the Sabbath was given to us, all of us, all humanity, to meet human need. Okay, what is human need? Well, worship, rest, repair, and to serve and care for others. That's a good Sabbath. Read your Bible. You'll find Jesus worshipped, and he rest, and he repair, and he served and cared for others. If you do that on the Lord's Day, that's a good Lord's Day. In other words, the spirit of the law, meet human need, was enjoyed by David and enjoyed by his followers. And by inference, Jesus says, it's going to be enjoyed by myself and enjoyed by my followers, which is why he says what he says in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for everybody. Not everybody for the Sabbath. In other words, 
right? Again, not just personal, but all humanity. In other words, the Sabbath was given to humanity for their blessing and for their benefit. The Sabbath was written into creation, okay? So before there ever was a Ten Commandments and a Fourth Commandment, in the beginning, on the seventh day, what do we do? What do we find God doing? We find God resting. Did God need the rest? Of course not. But he was laying down this principle that for six days he was going to do one thing. And on the one day, if you would, the Sabbath rest, he was going to do something completely different. That is a Sabbath principle. It's established right in the beginning of the creation of this world. This world works better six on, one off, if you would. Therefore, Jesus says the Sabbath was a gift from God for everyone's blessing and benefit, not as a way to put down burdens with people, which was what the Pharisees were doing, right? All their traditions and all their weighty laws, which were no laws at all, they either put beside or they elevated past God's law. And so in order for a person to be righteous before God, and that's the key, they had to do what they said to do on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees were willing to reduce humanity into, if you would, rule-keeping robots. Some of you know this. One of the rules was that from your home, you were only allowed to go 1,999 paces. That's as far as you could go on the Sabbath. And if you went 2,000 paces, you're a big fat sinner. And there's something wrong between you and God. Now listen carefully. Okay, listen carefully. This doesn't justify us saying, you know what, there's only nine commandments. There's not really 10. And it's not for us to say that we can do whatever we like, seven out of seven days, six out of seven days, or one out of seven days. That's license. That's not Christian. However, it is to say the Sabbath was a day uniquely different from every other day, just as the seventh day of creation was uniquely different from the others. It's a day for doing good, which is not the same thing as doing whatever we like, right? So to seek your own personal pleasure only, on the Sabbath was not a way to keep the Sabbath. About two months ago, I was, I was cleaning. I said my, my car. It's actually my son's car. I don't have a car anymore. But anyway, <laughs> I was cleaning out my son's car and I had the radio on and Ravi Zacharias was talking. He's actually talking about this subject. And he said this, and I thought it was perfect. Any pleasure which jeopardizes the sacred right of another is an illicit pleasure. Right? What can we do and not do? Any pleasure which jeopardizes the sacred right of another is an illicit pleasure. You know, that's why in days gone by, people didn't do certain things on a Sunday. It wasn't as a means of righteousness. It was to say, I can't get in the way of my brother or sister worshiping Jesus on the Lord's day. So Jesus is saying here that this Sabbath was given for blessing and benefit. And you Pharisees, you're turning it into a burden and a detriment and you're adding all these rules and regulations as a way to become right with God. So Jesus then lays down authority. Verse 28, the Son of Man, right? That is a self-designation of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Any good Jew would know that he's talking out of Daniel now. The Son of Man is the Lord, is the King, is the ruler of the Sabbath. In other words, and this is our second point, declaring... He was declaring that he is the master of the day. And it is to Christ's honor, as a Christian, if you would, the Lord's day, it's to be kept. And that will bring you and a whole lot of other people blessing and benefit. Think of it like this. 
the Lord's day, the whole day, right? Because it doesn't end at noon. The Lord's day, the whole way, his way. Why? Christ is the master of the day. To his honor, it is to be enjoyed. And loved ones, whenever Jesus Christ is honored, people, lots and lots of people will be helped. Therefore, Jesus is not proposing that the Sabbath is not the Sabbath here. He's not canceling the Sabbath. He's not saying that you can chuck the fourth commandment or the the New Testament principle of the Lord's day. He's not saying that. He is just correcting the abuse of the Sabbath by the Pharisees as a means of achieving righteousness before God. And so he says, verse 28, I and I alone, I'm the guardian of the Sabbath. For the purposes God intended, I call the shots of what is right and what is wrong. And you Pharisees are wrong. Your additions and your little alterations are ruining whole households. You're locking people out of heaven and you're distorting a proper understanding of how a person can come into relationship with God. That's the idea. And this idea of distortion we find in the very next session in chapter 3. So verse 28, Jesus declares his authority. And then chapter 3, verse 1, he demonstrates his authority. That's our third point, demonstration. Verse 1, here we go again. The creepers are creeping, right? Pharisees are there again. It's like, ah. And so there's a synagogue. He's there and there's a man with a shriveled hand. In verse 3, it's the Sabbath. And how evil do you have to be as a Pharisee to, to want this guy, this man with a shriveled hand, to be your prop boy to make yourself right over Jesus? Verse 2, some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Now, when I read that for the first time, I thought there's something going on there, right? Watch him closely. What does that mean in the Greek language? So I, I got out my Greek lexicon, and this is what it means, the phrase, Watched him closely means literally to get close beside for personal interest, for personal success. Okay, to get close beside, watch, for personal interest, closely, for personal success. In other words, they're not watching to learn from Jesus. No, they're watching because they want to condemn Jesus because their mind is already made up. You ever done that? You're not watching to learn. You're watching so you can say, aha! Got you because your mind's already made up. So in verse 3, Jesus does a similar thing, which he did in chapter 2, verse 10. Remember the chapter 2, verse 10? So that you may know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. What does he do? He tells the man, get up, take your mat, and go home. He heals the man. And the guy got up, he took his mat, and he went home. Why? Because Jesus has authority. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Now, here we are in chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus is going to demonstrate his authority over the Sabbath to call the shots for the Sabbath. He says, stand up in front of everyone. And so the principle is the same. So that you may know the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 4. He comes with a question, though, this time. Okay, think with me. What is allowed on the Sabbath? To do good things or do bad things? To save life or to kill? What do they say? You see it there? They say nothing. They say nothing. And Jesus reacts to their silence with anger and deep distress. In other words, he's kind of mad at them for right reasons. At the same time, he has compassion over them because of their stubborn hearts. Any honest person who did not have an agenda would have to answer that question in the affirmative. The only proper thing to do on the Sabbath is to do good. The right thing to do on the Sabbath is to save life. But they remain silent. 
Now think with me. I told you at the beginning, the fundamental issue here is how does God forgive sin? And how does God bring a person into relationship with himself? And organized Pharisees, externalized Pharisees, popular religion Pharisees reject this idea of undeserved favor and of grace. Right? Because it's bad for business, for one. And whenever this pharisaical type, works-based, organized, establishment religion is cornered, it's prepared to stand against the gospel, Jesus, viciously. Hence, verse 6. That is why they want Jesus gone. Because he confronts them at their very core. There's no way a person can be made right with God by their own dead works. It has to be grace. All grace. So the Pharisees are the ones saying that, okay, you're going to be breaking the Sabbath. You heal the man. Jesus says, you do not understand the right use of the law. I cannot leave this man as he is. It would be breaking the Sabbath if I I did not do good and heal him. So again, you're sensible people. Which one makes any sense at all? You're going to leave the guy till the next day? Really? Are you going to do good, save life, and heal his hand? Verse 5, Jesus tells the man to do what he cannot do. He's got a shriveled hand. (laughs) Jesus, the guy's hand is shriveled. Why are you telling him to stretch out his hand? Exactly. That is a picture of the gospel, right? Jesus speaks, and new life the dead receive. We were dead in our sins and we were dead in our trespasses and we did not make ourselves alive. Jesus had to speak power over us. And when he spoke power over us, then all of a sudden I got the gospel. My heart was changed. Stretch out your hand. The man is able to stretch out his hand. Whomever Jesus calls and draws will come. That's grace. That's the power of Christ. Jesus Christ restores things to the way they ought to be. Jesus Christ restores this man's hand to the way it was meant to be. The law could never do that. Do you understand that? The law could never do that. You could how-to yourself to all eternity, and it couldn't do that. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can bring about the fullness of joy that came with this restoration. So the law shows us our sin. It shows us our rebellion towards God. It shows us that we lie sometimes. It shows us that our motives are not always pure. It shows us that we do have jealous hearts and covetous hearts. And it shows us that all of God's law cannot cleanse us from the stain in our lives of breaking God's law. Only Jesus can do this. Listen carefully, please. Only Jesus can bring us into the joy of obedience in God's commands, right? There was absolutely no joy in the life of the Pharisees in their obedience because there was no Jesus connected to their obedience so that none of the law, none of the law, obedience, doesn't need to feel like a burden because it's grace which produces the kind of burdenless obedience not legalism. Say that again. It is grace which produces a burdenless obedience, not legalism. Grace changes to, oh, are you kidding me? I have to do this? (laughs) Would you forgive me? I'm signed up for this again. (laughs) To, oh, thank God. 
Thank God I get to do this. And by God's grace, I can do this. So if grace doesn't produce obedience in our life, the only other alternative, the only other obedience will always be legalism. And legalism makes serving God feel like a great burden. And oftentimes, if we're going to be honest, the the only boost of energy we may receive is if we know other people are watching. That was the Pharisees. They loved it when people watched them. So if we don't get the buzz anymore from serving Jesus, then we're just going to stop. That's legalism. And that only feeds the flesh. That is false power. There is no Christ power in that. And by the way, wouldn't you hate to be the friend of a legalist? I mean, because the only way you're going to stay friends is if you do everything the way they say to do it. And if you're going to do everything the way they say to do it, then you can be friends. If you just veer off a little bit, then we can't be friends. What is that? What is that? It's not Christian. The legalist says this, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Christianity says, no, 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 I am accepted, therefore I obey. And the two ways are at complete odds with each other. Take your New Testament this, this afternoon. Read some of the epistles. And you're going to find the constant problem in almost every epistle, if not every epistle, is how a person uh, is welcome into God's presence, how a person is forgiven by God, how a person is uh, made and stays righteous before God. That is every problem. One side, belief plus obedience equals justification. Paul says, no, no, no. Belief plus obedience. That is not justification. It is belief, then justified, then obedience. And there is all the difference in the world. One is life and one is death. One condemnation, one justification. One is external uh, pretend religion. One is is Christianity. One will bear fruit that will last. One is like just a dead tree. One is heaven. One is hell. Either Jesus does it all or he does it nothing. There is no other gospel. And so here we are at this still, at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ, and he's angry. He's deeply distressed because of their stubborn hearts. And so he takes these people on, and he answers the most basic question a person must ask, how how may I be put right with God? And probably for a lot of us here, how can I stay right with God? Legalism teaches, I obey, therefore I am accepted. So when I'm really, really obeying, I'm feeling really, really great. But Christianity says, no, no, no. I am accepted all the time. Therefore, I obey. And, and to the legalist, the only logical question you could ask them are two. Okay, how much obedience? And which works, which obedience scores higher? Is it fasting? Is it this kind of obedience? Is it that kind of obedience? It's shiny stuff? Only Christ redeeming love can break through our stubborn hearts. Because see, what we find here is that by nature, people are not apathetic to the message of the gospel. By nature, they're antagonistic to the message of the gospel. Four questions, and we'll get prepared to take communion. First, are you religious or are you Christian? Do you merit God's favor by your works Or do you merit God's favor on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross? Here's my prayer. 
all of us will say yes to the latter. Jesus. And no to the former. Religious, legalistic, external religion. Let's pray. And those who will be coming to serve communion with you would please just make your way forward while we pray. A simple little prayer. This indeed must be all our strength to see nothing in ourselves but to see all in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.